welcome to the Deadly Analysis Podcast. Tonight, I'm joined by Ben, Shayra, and Garrett to discuss the 1968 classic, Rosemary's Baby. Written and directed by now controversial director Roman Polanski, it tells the story of Rosemary, a woman who, together with her husband Guy, is trying to get pregnant. They move into a New York apartment and meet the Castavets, an elderly couple with a secret. And after Guy befriends the couple and garners some professional success, Rosemary and Guy learn that they are indeed about to have a baby. But we know that the baby is the product of a devilish ceremony by the Castavets' coven of witches bent on bringing the child of Satan into the world. Nominated for two Oscars, including a win for Ruth Gordon and a box office success, it can't be understated what Rosemary's Baby did for the horror genre in 1968. It proved that R-rated, still a relatively new category, high-minded horror could be both commercially and artistically successful. It put Polanski on the map and ushered in a new era of supernatural horror films like The Exorcist in 76 and The Omen in 1973. But does the film hold up to today's scrutiny? Does it have some cultural relevance today? In many ways, the film is about authority, who has it, how it's maintained, and how women are routinely denied authority which is still a relevant theme in today's discourse. We'll talk about its portrayal of gaslighting and authority, religion, feminism, and more over the next two hours of spoiler-filled discussion. But let's start here. Mia Farrow, who was notoriously snubbed at the Oscars, uh, has championed the film's merits and constantly pushed back on the narrative that Rosemary is a victim in the film. What do you think, my intrepid co-hosts? Do you consider Rosemary a victim? And what are your general reactions to the movie? Okay, so uh, victim, yes, but she's not a victim who's just sitting there and taking it. She's obviously continued continuing to pursue like information about this stuff. She's actively trying to solve this mystery. She invites all of her girlfriends over to get some perspective and they back up what she's been saying. And she's like, yep, I've been gaslighted. Like she figures that out. Um, she goes and tries to get a second opinion from a doctor. Uh, she continues to try to get around all of this stuff, including going to telephone booths to, you know, try to get a hold of somebody that can help her with the situation. So she is actively trying to fight for herself and advocate for herself. She's not just sitting there and taking it. I guess it's what do you consider a victim? I mean, you can be a victim of something and still fight. Uh, I think she's a fighting victim. <laughs> I don't know if that counts for anything. Um, but maybe that's what she took, uh, where she got a problem with that. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, it's hard to it's hard to say because we've talked about victim a couple of times on the show now. And, like, what is a victim? And um, maybe she just took took it as the wrong way. Like, you could be a victim and still be a fighter. I think maybe I've gotten contrary information. Do you have, Jim? I'm, I'm looking here at the, at the trivia page on IMDb, and according to an unsourced comment, Mia Farrow has slammed Rosemary as being a victim. So maybe that comment is mistaken, or maybe you're mistaken, or maybe she's done both in some way. Um, uh, so yeah, that, that's an, a wrinkle from my point of view. As to the question itself, I'm not sure I would so much call her a victim, but that 
to, to my mind, hinges entirely on the very, very end of the film, which I assume we're going to get into uh, in some depth. Uh, but I, a similar criticism that I might have, and I think is fair, it's not so much that she's a victim, so much as that she's she's pretty reactionary. You know, m most of her, the things she does is res is a response to what other people do, rather than a, an assertion of her, her own, um, rather than making her own autonomy uh, front and center. Now, arguably, the point of the film is her struggling for autonomy. I mean, obviously, there is you know a sort of a pro-life, pro-choice uh, metaphor going on there about women trying to control their own bodies in the face of religious authority, in the face of a medical establishment that wants to to take their autonomy away from them, et cetera, and so forth. All things which I assume we're going to dive into uh, in some more depth later on. Uh, yeah, I think I, I honestly am going to have to agree with pretty much everything that's that's been set up to this point. I don't think I'm going to have an original position on this. Um, I honestly, I, I do see her as as being a victim, and I think the crux of that honestly is that whenever she wakes up the next morning after the scene where she is drugged and then taken into that ritual, um, she says that she has this dream about being raped. And also she has this conversation with her husband about him going ahead and his, his excuse, the reason she has scratches on her arms is because he went ahead and did what he wanted to do because he was drunk while she was passed out. And she seemed to have a pretty big problem with that. And yes, she wanted to have the child. She explicitly sort of fights throughout the entire course of the movie trying to protect protect her child from people who want to take that away from her. Um, but I think at the core of this entire thing, yes, there's gaslighting. Yes, there's deception. She struggles quite a bit. But the whole thing begins with her being victimized. And so that's kind of like the, the lens that I, I use, even if at the end of the film, after all of this manipulation and after all this stuff happens, she sort of gives into her maternal instincts. Um, I don't think that necessarily changes the way that I would see what happens toward the beginning of the film, if that makes sense. Sure. And uh, just to thank you for fact checking me there, Garrett. Yeah, that's true that uh, I misread the IMDb line and um I have, I have sort of looked up uh, Rosemary's Baby, Mia Farrow on Rosemary's Baby, and I thought I had read something where she was uh, kind of defending the film a little bit, but maybe I, I made a mistake there. But yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's certainly an interesting question of whether or not uh, I, our relationship to this character. I mean, this film is is structured in, in an interesting way, right? Um, we get at the beginning, uh, like sort of, it almost seems to be the inciting action of the film, and that is that rape scene that you're talking about. And another film might have given us some mystery about that. Like, another film might have structured that where we are following Rosemary as she's trying to figure out what's going on, um, but we don't do that. Like, we know that her husband is duplicitous. We know that... Uh, their neighbors are in a cult. And so we're actually ahead of Rosemary throughout the entire course of this movie. Um, and that does lead to the idea that she is a victim since we know uh, more information than she does throughout the entire movie. And we're just waiting for her to catch up to us. Does that structure work for you? Because for me, that's one of the things that Rosemary's Baby actually, that, that's one of the problems I have with this movie. I think that's what gives it a tragic structure, personally. I mean, you know, so one of the classical uh, understandings of tragedy is precisely that you know what's going to happen to the character before it happens to them. You see their fate that they cannot see, and they careen towards it, and you want to sit there and you want to scream at them and tell them, no, 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 um, but nothing you can do will... Uh, uh, 
avert that 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 tragic ending. Um, you know, you see that in classics, you know, like Hamlet, for example, to take an obvious example, or Oedipus. Um, so, if you wanted to, to you know, perhaps uh, gild the lily and, and treat it not so much as a horror film, but as a kind of tragedy, uh, which I think it has tragic elements, then I don't think that structure that you mentioned is a, is a problem with it. I think that's part of what uh, what sort of defines it uh, in terms of genre. Um, it arguably does in some ways uh, 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 mitigate some of the fear precisely because, and I think you are right here, we've got, we know pretty damn well what's going to happen, you know, uh, by the end. Um, but it, you know, that, to my mind, doesn't make it any less scary any more than, you know, knowing that the Titanic is going to sink makes Titanic any less dram dramatic. That's that's really interesting. So speaking of, of drama here, Jim, something that you've said to me before that I, I think really applies here is that if you want to re restructure this or like reframe it rather uh, in terms of its genre, uh, you said to me, I think that you you sort of think about all movies perhaps uh, from like a drama foundation, right? From like it, it's a drama plus this plus that. Um, and honestly, if you, if you wanted to think about this as a tragic drama with sort of like a horror mode, um, sort of like with with sort of like horror elements built into the way that it's written, the way that we know something supernaturally is going wrong. And I think that's probably really what sort of like cinches this is like as being in the horror genre is the supernatural element, the satanic element. Um, but with that sort of layered on top of it, I think at its foundation, yeah, I mean, it makes complete sense to think about this as a tragic drama, but as far as us knowing what's going to happen before it actually happens, um, and having that set up and seeing the ritual and seeing all this crazy stuff and knowing that there's something like really fundamentally wrong and she's trying to catch up to that. For me, I think I think it builds tension. I think it's fantastic at building tension because you want to know what that final that final payoff is going to be. the The best part about this is that they they sort of like they draw it out in a really nuanced, subtle way. You don't get a whole bunch of supernatural hoo ha, even though it is a supernatural film. They they just give you enough. They just give you just enough to build tension toward that final climactic moment. And I think personally, I, I loved that about it. I loved that about the structure. So, uh, I don't know that we knew everything though. Um, one of the things that was very intriguing about this in the mystery, how did they, and when did they convince the husband to get involved in a particular way? And how involved was he? We never, ever get any insight into that. At first, he's like, I don't want to hang out with these people. And he didn't even want to move into that building. He was the one constantly like, I don't know. And then all of a sudden, he's like, why aren't you eating the pudding? <laughs> it's like, whoa, when did they when did they like figure this out and you know yeah there were times where he went off and talked to them alone we don't know how often because there were a lot of times where he was working where was he boo, boo, boo. we don't know he might have been over at their house trying to plan things trying to figure out what to do um maybe going to them for advice on how to um, manipulate her we don't know how involved he was if he was joining the cult himself and was going into the rituals we don't know how involved the husband is. And I think that added a huge amount of mystery to it. Yeah, we figured he was involved, but when did they get to him and how did they get to him? We never, we never find that out, which is very intriguing and mysterious. Well, the one thing we do have is that line at the end where he says, they promised me you wouldn't get hurt and uh, look at how much we've got out of it. And so that seems to me that he's making sort of a Faustian bargain, which which of course we'll 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 get into that uh, later. But I do want to focus on this 
relationship, this, uh, this relationship between Rosemary and Guy, because I think it's a really interesting relationship. It starts out with, like, both of them at different times in the relationship use kind of passive-aggressive gaslighting to moti- motivate each other to do something. Rosemary to motivate Guy to attend the first cast of it dinner, and Guy then later uses the same sort of passive-aggressive bat- gaslighting to get her to eat the moose. Um, and then he talks about how there's no under taste and then she says oh yes there's no undertaste which of course she's lying like these are all the lies that people tell each other in in relationships and and in marriages i suspect uh what is more guy keeps saying that he's going to improve this mirrors kind of the behavior of of abusers and yet at the end all of that said there's there's this moment at the beginning that really uh, it struck me, and it was Rosemary and Guy are having dinner in the empty apartment, and she just up and says, let's make love, and then he, like, they immediately get to it, and that kind of, it, it, it says to me that they have, like, a companionship that's almost beyond romance into, like, this realm of marital comfort, so... Uh, like, I just, what do you make of their relationship? Because on the one hand, they gaslight the shit out of each other and they're passive aggressive. And this is not a relationship that I would want to be in, of course. Um, but then there's that moment at the beginning, which I think is so anti-romantic that it loops around and becomes romantic again. Relationships are layered. <laughs> and, uh... No, really? They are. <laughs> I mean, I think that's what makes it so realistic, honestly. Like, it's... I don't know. It, it's very fascinating to me because... Um, I'll just put it this way. Daniel and I give each other a lot of crap all the time. And there are people that don't know us, and they'll come over and they're just like, Oh gosh, are they fighting? No, we are. Uh, we have our ways. Like sometimes those things are like part of the flirtations, part of the silliness of the relationship, and it might be interpreted differently by others. Um, it's it, I don't know. It's hard to explain because once you get to a certain connection with someone, you sometimes don't even need to say things, and they figured you all out. And it's hard to write that into a movie. Um, Maybe that was how they tried to show that in that scene when they're on the hardwood floor in the middle of this empty apartment. She's like, let's make love after she cracks open a beer. Like, and he's like, okay. Like, that's sometimes how it was possibly already being communicated in some way between them. And it's hard to write that. I don't know if that's what they were going for, but relationships are really weird from the outside looking in. They make sense when you're the one in it, though. Well, I mean, it may be just my idiosyncratic reading of that scene that I found that to be so anti-romantic, as I said, that loops around and becomes romantic. It may be just my own idiosyncratic reading of it. Um, And it may be that this is a a poisoned relationship from the beginning in which she kind of has control because she's forcing him to move into this apartment that she doesn't want. That, that he doesn't want to move into. He, she's not necessarily uh, too understanding of his work. And then, of course, of course, it loops all the way. And he becomes the one that has the control and is being just awful to her. As I said, like his behavior mirrors the behavior of abusers. 
Um, it's there, I don't think that's a mistake. I think that it's deliberately trying to talk about um, him gaslighting her and, and sort of condemning that. But yeah, what do you what do the other gentlemen think? I don't think she gaslights him. I think she's passive aggressive towards him. But I also don't really see her as being in control so much at any point in the relationship. But that's in large part because other than having a baby, there isn't a whole lot that she really seems to want. Uh, you know, I mean, he, you know what he wants. He wants success in his career and so forth. But he also, to a much lesser degree, wants his family and a child and uh, and to be married and so forth. Her, the, basically the only thing she, only motivation she really has at all is to have a baby and to keep it safe and protect it. And in that respect, she's not exactly a terribly fleshed out or terribly, terribly developed character. Um, you know, she uh, uh, she has moments here and there where she sort of you know, uh, uh, you know, stands up and fights for herself, which, again, is a point about agency, which we'll come back to later on. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I agree that relationships are layered and that they look different from the inside than they look from the outside uh, and all that that's been said. But personally, I look at this as being a pretty loveless marriage from the start. Uh, it, it, I, I don't really see a whole lot of love for each other. He clearly is more invested in his career than he is in his wife, and she clearly wants a child more than she wants to connect with her husband. Uh, so, yeah, I uh, uh, maybe that's my cynicism towards having kids and, and how kids can in many ways disrupt relationships coming through there. But, uh, but personally, I, my take is the relationship is, even before the Satanists get involved, it's not exactly a healthy relationship. Maybe maybe I just have like a, a little bit of a different reading on this. And so obviously, obviously, um, this has to be taken, I think, within a framework of of um, a 1960s relationship. Right. Like, obviously, I think the gender dynamics, the household dynamics were very, very different in the 60s. The expectations were very different. And in fact, I think that whole bit about her getting a short haircut and everyone calling her ugly because of that, basically, like, I mean, that sort of plays into, I think, the into the sort of like dynamics that you would have expected to see in the sixties when it comes to husband and wife and what women were supposed to be like and what men were supposed to be like, honestly, at the very beginning of the movie, I saw them as being pretty playful with each other. Um, it, it seemed to be like they were kind of like joking, like they make jokes about growing pot plants or whatever, like it, whenever they see the garden, like, I, you know, I don't know. It seemed like they were just sort of playful with each other. And yes, like she tried to convince him to go into this other apartment that's a little bit more expensive and he's kind of worried about the cash. But yeah, I mean, like what what couple doesn't sort of like have those kind of disagreements where one person tries to convince the other? And like, I don't necessarily see it as being nefarious, of course, until one of them tries to manipulate the other one into, you know, selling a child to the devil. Um, and yeah, I mean, like I to me, it just seems it just seems fairly normal. I don't know, like the, the relationship up to that seems fairly normal. And even even guys motivations to doing that, I think he was convinced that that his whole future and her whole future by extension were going to be improved by that action. And so even though what he did was justified, like it was unjustifiable, it was very wrong. Um, he made the wrong choices, but I think from his psychology and the character, the way I read that character, he was probably doing it because he thought that it was going to make a better home life for, for him as well as his wife and their kids. I, that's the way that I see those motivations is just, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't see it as being, terribly as nefarious i don't see as much gaslighting going on i think they were probably pretty playful they did seem very comfortable with each other and it just sort of happened to slip up whenever he overextended his control in the relationship and made decisions that she didn't want to make without her knowledge um because he thought it was going to be best for his family right 
um, yeah, that's I think that's where it started to go wrong. I agree, and I I disagree that she, it was like loveless because there was a scene that's super important where she's um, getting her whole entire apartment dressed up the way she wants. And by the way, that is a huge amount of control she has over making a space for them. Um, it, and she's working on that. And when she's putting up some curtains, she hears that commercials are about to start for, you know, this NASCAR race. And she runs as fast as she can and gets in front of the TV and turns it up and is so excited to see her husband, you know, doing his acting career. Like she adores him. She thinks he's very, very special. But um, when he starts lying to her and she can tell that he's lying to her, um, she gets confused. Like, why? Because and, and this is how I know that they had a love, a loving relationship ahead of time. The fact that she was getting as upset as she was getting is because she had gotten used to them always sharing everything together. And when you have that kind of a connection with somebody and then they start acting weird, you're like, what the hell's wrong with you? That's you're acting strange. Why are you saying this? Why are you doing this? This is not like you. And so um, her confusion and her uh, reaction to the situation, I think, was more so because she thought she could trust him and that trust got cut and severed. So um, and then when she found out she was correct about everything she almost kind of succumbed to it like well i was right oh well <laughs> it was kind of like she just buckled over and i know we're going to get into that more but i feel like her reactions uh during and after show how much she actually did love him honestly and to to that point if we consider this a tragic drama um as as ben and, and garrett were arguing for um a couple minutes ago it doesn't it enhances the tragedy if this is a good relationship gone bad than if this is a loveless relationship that gone worse, right? Um, and so it, it, as we're thinking about this, uh, this film, both structurally and thematically, um, if we structure, and I agree that tragic drama probably fits this, uh, fits this category, although I think that you can structure tragic dramas differently and add mystery elements to it, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, as a whole, it, it makes sense that this is not a loveless relationship. Um, but let's talk about, uh, I, I want to talk about authority just a little bit more because I think authority is really important in this, in this film. I mean, I, I actually see this entire film as sort of a, uh, a meditation on how authority gets built. And, it's specifically the cast of it's build Saperstein as kind of this medical authority. We keep getting this, we keep getting pounded with this idea that Saperstein is the greatest doctor in the history of doctors. He's amazing. He's uh, a medical authority. And then he just diminishes the medical authority of, uh, of, of books. Rosemary wants to read other books and he's like, don't read the books. And she says, but I'm in, I'm in pain. So he diminishes both the medical science authority inherent in books, but also the, the authority inherent in the patient's own experience. And so how authority is built, um, like all of these, all of these ways are about how women are demeaned, um, both in terms of their, their intellect and in their own experience and displaying authority in this way and gaslighting Rosemary 
um, as it relates to her own uh, individual experience with the the uh, pregnancy makes me think that this is uh, a feminist film because it's portraying how women are constantly stripped of authority. Um, what, what say you? I mean, is the 1968 uh, Rosemary's Baby actually a feminist movie? I mean, yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, tell me how. <laughs> but I, I, I would even like to add in that um, the older woman, she plays a part of how women are are taken advantage of as well. Um, a lot of people will think that feminism means all women are right and all men are wrong, blah, blah, blah. That's not accurate. Um, it's a really weird thing that people seem to think feminism is you will actually see women hurt other women and try to bring other women down. And that is also part of why we need feminism because we actually have women in our lives constantly giving us really poor advice, uh, constantly telling us to do things that can cause very serious issues in our relationships, issues with our health, issues with uh, just major life choices that are going on. And, um, I think that having a character, an older woman character, who is actively trying to use this poor girl, like, I think that's huge, a huge part of it. Like, it's a much more well-rounded uh, understanding of feminism and the things that women have to fight against. Um, because it's not just all men are bad doing the bad things to women. Um, although I find it interesting that they use a trope that's been harming women forever, the idea of the witches are evil, to uh, to to say this. It's like, you you may have wanted to read up on this a little bit more, guys, because this is literally the tropes they use to attack women, and you're using this to show how women are attacked. I find it hilarious that you might have missed that one, but, you know, that's neither one here nor there. It's the 60s. <laughs> we are, one thing which is worth noting there is that while the witch, witches in this film is a gender neutral uh, designation, there are male witches. They don't call them warlocks or something like that. They just they call them all witches. Um, and so that in some ways perhaps uh, mediates the concern, that last concern you mentioned there, uh, Sherrod. But uh, yeah, to, to the broader question you're, you're bringing up about authority, yeah, I mean, I already sort of teased a little bit my thoughts about how, you know, there's, there's, there, there is a, a sort of abortion allegory here or, you know, a reproductive rights allegory, if you prefer put it, to put it in those terms, about a woman trying to control her body and having both religious and medical authorities and her husband uh, stealing that autonomy from her and telling her what to do with her body um to to the, the the point that you you made jim about you know she's being told not to read books not to think uh you know there is a uh, a, a long history of again of, of the medicalization of pregnancy uh, 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 uh transforming the experience which women often consider to be empowering and one of the most important experiences in their lives giving birth to a child and turning it into a clinical experience, which is often devoid of the sort of uh, cultural and emotional associations which can empower that experience. Uh, and there's also a long tradition in, in feminist fiction, feminist horror fiction in particular, of, of, of talking about how women are uh, disconnected from their own experiences regarding pregnancy and childbirth. I'm thinking most explicitly here about Char uh, Charlotte Perkins Gilman's short story, The Yellow Wallpaper, which is a masterpiece of feminist horror fiction um, and shares with Rosemary's Baby these themes of the medical establishment 
ignoring women, not listening to women, not taking their concerns seriously, and instead simply trying to dictate to them uh, what is best for them and how this is a really bad idea. Uh, and, you know, to not to put too fine a point on it, uh, but I do think that you, you don't have to look too hard to see one moral of the story of, of, of Rosemary's Baby being that we should trust women and listen to women, especially when it comes to their own procreative capacities, their own health care, uh, their own subjective experience with regard to, to what their bodies are going through. Um, you know, to this day, there is still an ugly and unfortunate trend of medical doctors marginalizing and not listening to women and not giving their concerns uh, the full weight and authority that they, that they give to, 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 to men in similar circumstances and so forth. Um, and, and I don't think I'm reading too much into the film to see this film as criticizing that trend. Sure, as I was telling John Oliver just the other day, I mean, that was a, uh, a masterful piece by John Oliver. Uh, I think it was three or four, we three or four weeks ago where he was talking about just this this thing. And uh, on top of that, the advice that John Oliver gave of having a man tell the doctor the things, uh, we utilized that a couple weeks ago when I went to the ER in severe pain. Um, I had severe pain in my chest. I had tingles all the way down the left of my arm. It was scary symptoms that we were concerned about. So we go to the doctor and I'm saying all of my problems and they're kind of looking at me dumbfounded. And then Daniel repeats it all and they're like, oh, okay. And I was like, John Oliver was right. And he was like, dude, I'm so glad we watched that episode. <laughs> so it's true, by the way. And so there are still things we need to fight for. There are still things that are a problem. Women, when they talk of their pain, they are not heard for some reason uh they're 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 just going crazy you know and it makes you feel crazy when you're like i feel this way and people are like hmm do you really and you're like i don't know maybe i don't maybe i'm losing my mind and this clearly happens to rosemary in the movie she starts to feel like i know i know you're thinking i'm crazy i know i know i seem i know i seem nuns conspiracies happen right right and she just seems like she's losing it but when you're not heard you do come across as crazy because you start to go nuts from it. And um, I think that was so well depicted in this film. It, that is almost the exact reaction you would have when people are not hearing you out about severe pain that you're dealing with. And notice that when she talked to her girlfriends in the kitchen about this pain she's been going through, they all felt rage. They were like, what the hell's wrong with all these people? No. And um, it's because they've been through it too. It's not just Rosemary that experiences this. Yeah, Rosemary's having a devil baby and they haven't, but they know these feels. They've been through it too. They've experienced these things too. And that's where that rage comes from is, is the empathy that they have for that situation. So I think that was so well portrayed. And by the way, women do do that together. We get in big groups and we're like, oh no, uh-uh, uh-uh, no, no, no. For one girl who's like, I, w I went through this and all the women together are like, Here's what we're all gonna do, okay? This is, we need to nip this in the bud. Another quick uh, side note, which I wanna throw in here, uh, uh, behind the scenes, uh, as I was reading up for, for this, uh, apparently um, Mia Farrow's marriage to Frank Sinatra dissolved during the filming of this because he, uh, Frank Sinatra basically was putting more of a demand on her time. He, he wanted her to spend more time with him uh, and she wanted to pursue her acting career more diligently and she thought, you know, she was, suggested she might get an Oscar nomination, as you mentioned, Jim famously snubbed, but that was enough to sort of to convince her apparently 
that uh, uh, that she uh, was willing to put her marriage on the back burner in favor of her career in a weird way, kind of parale paralleling the uh, her, the male character, the husband in in the film, um, uh, and it cost her her marriage. Um, but you know, again, you, you can in a more charitable light, see it as a man was trying to control her and she told, told him, fuck you, I'm going to do what I need to do for me. Yeah, there's a, yes, yeah, Sinatra actually served her divorce papers during the production of this movie. Um, but uh, there's, you brought it, you said a word, Shayra, which I think is really interesting. And it's a word that was used in this movie. And it's a word that's been used in connection with medical science. And that is hysteria. Now, if we take apart the uh, the etymology of this word, if I say, uh, oh, that's hysterical, uh, and I do this with my students all the time, I say, okay, so what does hysterical mean? And people say overly emotional, um, hilarious, uh, funny, too uh, uproarious, et cetera, et cetera. But then if you just take apart what hyster means, H-Y-S-T-E-R, what does that mean? Where else do we see that word? Hysterectomy, which literally means the removal of the womb. So hyster essentially means woman. Therefore, hysteria or hysterical means woman-like. And so let's go back to the definitions that people say. Overly emotional, crazy, hilarious, um, out of control. And so even in our even in the language that we use, there is a underlying misogyny in that language. Uh, and, and of course, this doesn't mean that anybody who uses the term hysterical is a, a, a misogynist. No, it doesn't mean that because we know that there's a difference between what you mean and the etymology of the word. That said, it is still nonetheless interesting that hidden in the the language that we use, especially as it relates to medical science, hysteria was a acceptable medical diagnosis all the way through the early 20th century. And yet the, what that word just basically means is woman-like. And uh, yeah, I think we're getting to a lot of the feminist themes in this movie. And and I mean, even then we started to talk about the feminine roles that are played throughout this this film. And, you know, you brought up the haircut earlier, Ben, and she gets a lot of shit for this haircut over the course of this movie. It's it's a boyish haircut. And as a metaphor, this could suggest that Rosemary is kind of departing from her feminine role and the male characters are demanding that she get back in her place. And at the end of the film, her look... Well, go ahead, Garrett. You, you, you're you raising your hand here. No, I was just going to say a quick side note. That haircut actually was performed by Vidal Sassoon himself. Like, the man himself. So... Right, 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 right. And, uh, but nonetheless, the point is, is that, you know, she's she's got this boyish haircut. And then they're telling her to get back in her place. But then at the end of the film, her look at the devil child kind of implies that she's gone back to this maternal nurturing. And I'm wondering if that runs, how do you read that ending in light of some of the feminist themes that we're talking about? It could be argued that she has 
strayed away from her feminine role over the course of the movie. She has resisted having the child. She's cut her hair. She hasn't taken care of the house. She hasn't kept her husband happy. And then at the end of the film, she looks at her child, takes on a maternal air, and so she has gotten back in her place at the end of the movie. It could be argued that that ending undercuts some of the feminist themes that we've talked about over the last 15 15 minutes. It could be argued that this is actually an anti-feminist movie. That's a really interesting read because, and I like it. Um, it's challenging my native reading. My native reading actually was was that that's sort of an existentialist moment where she actually is making the decision that she cares so much about being a mother that she's willing to literally raise Satan rather than be divorced from her own child. Um, and you know, so yeah, I, I was thinking of it as as a deliberate choice that she's making, which again is back to the point about autonomy. And so, in that sense, I I, I saw it as a sort of a, a, a double sided ending. On the one hand, it is tragic because she's succumbing to the the dark forces of Satan, as it were. But on the other hand, at least she's doing it for her own reasons. She's doing it because she's allowed the choice, not because she's forced. Or because, you know, like shortly before the final ending, right, where it looked like she was just going to be separated from the child and have no no choice at all. Now she gets the decision and she's explicitly offered that decision by the cultists to be the mother. They're not forcing her. They're not saying she can't be a part of it. They're giving her the option and she takes it and she chooses it. And in that respect, I took it kind of as an existentialist moment and, you know, one that I think fits broadly with the themes of existentialist feminism. Uh, but now that I'm looking at it the way that you're presenting it, Jim, I'm having second thoughts about that. So now I'm not quite so sure what to think. Maybe, uh, Ben or Shara, you guys want to weigh in and push me off the fence one way or the other here. Um, so I guess I'm the only person here that is a mom. So I should probably weigh in on, on what that is. Um, I, when I found out I was pregnant, when I wasn't trying at all, and I was on multiple different kinds of birth control trying to avoid pregnancy... I broke down and cried in a bathroom for hours. I was miserable about it. I did not want to have a baby. I was going to college. I knew it was going to destroy a lot of what I was planning for my future and for what I wanted to do with my life. And it did hold me back. It held me back from being able to finish college. It held me back from being able to move forward in my life. And I stayed with someone for nine years that never loved me and I never loved him. And that felt like a lot of loss. But whenever I see my daughter, I'm like, ugh worth it fucking worth it i don't know if it means i'm crazy or if i've given into some bullshit or i i don't know i just know how i feel when i see her and when she starts advocating for others and she's fighting for our planet and she's like doing all these amazing things and she's brilliant and she wants to be a doctor and i'm just sitting there like ooey gooey over this wonderful person that you know yeah it it caused an issue for me. I went through some stuff. I was extraordinarily sick for half of my pregnancy. I had my wisdom teeth grow in and they couldn't do anything about it. So my face was puffed up like this and I was in severe pain. Um, the pregnancy went bad and I had some major issues afterwards. I mean, I could go on and on about the horror of it all. It was the worst. But once again, I see her and I'm like, okay. It's fine. And I don't know if that's something that our brain is programmed to do, if that's just how we are, so that we can 
take care of our babies. They made them with big heads and big eyes, so we think they're cute and want to take care of them. I don't know if it how this all works. You know, I don't know if this is something spiritual or just something that's biological to make sure that we pass our DNA on and live forever because we have this weird desire to live forever. I, I mean, we could go on and on and on about it, but it is something you do as a parent and especially as a mom, so... But do you think that that, how do you think that that plays into, like, I, you know, of course, that's a, that's a moving experience. And, and it's something that, you know, I think we've all kind of heard or, or, or maybe some of us have felt in some ways, you know, this, this nurturing desire and whatnot. And, and, uh, but do you think, how do you think that's being portrayed in the film? Like, how do you think that relates to... Uh, that final moment as it relates to the film's overall attitude toward uh, uh, gender and and whatnot? Well, I mean, honestly, it's uh, she went through something that was traumatic. She was raped by her husband, who she loved. She was she went through this horrible pregnancy. She was in pain most of it. But she loves her kid. And I mean, I think that's pretty clear. She loves her kid. I don't know what necessarily is the underlying theme except for that's literally what women go through every day that's just a an occurrence that occurs every day we go through hell it, it sucks all of your um nutrients and stuff out of your body while you're pregnant you i gained half of my weight in just my stomach alone i could hardly walk i could hardly move and on top of that um I suffered, they call it mommy brain. Um, I don't, I don't know if that's a very proper way of, of calling it, but uh, I, my brain literally could not think things through properly. I forgot everything. I misplaced everything. Um, I, I became kind of dumb, I guess is the best way to put it. I, I felt very dumb at least. And it wasn't until years afterwards that I was able to rejuvenate my brain it it sucks everything out of you it's a traumatic event and um I don't know I just feel like they're just depicting what it is to be pregnant and the horror of that and it is horrifying to be pregnant and I'm sure lots of people are like oh yay I'm pregnant it's horrifying there's a a thing inside of you taking all of your energy and all of your stuff from you and, and then it rips you apart and uh, and then your life has changed forever and you have to stop dreaming about certain dreams. That's that's pretty horrifying. It is a pretty horrifying thing. And not only that, it's something that was pushed on her and she had no choice in the matter. Like that's extra horrifying. So um, and that does happen to a lot of women as well. Um, I don't know. It just feels so real. I don't know how to put it any other way other than it feels very much like what it is to be a mom. So my interpretation, um, I think mostly the way I thought about this film was through its like heavily Christian themes, but I kind of see the trajectory and the tragedy of the end of the film sort of like, I, I think it overlaps if you, if you interpret this in a feminist perspective versus if you interpret it purely just from the, the more obvious Christian perspective. And if you want to say that the end, the sort of tragic end of Rosemary's story is that her maternal instincts are kind of used against her so that other people can kind of like manipulate her to get what they ultimately want right so i mean she's fighting the entire time to have this autonomy and make her decisions but as soon as they have the thing that she cares about most in the world they use that to make her sort of fall in line 
and yes, you know, they gave her, they gave her a choice at the end. Um, ultimately I feel like they would have done whatever it took to sort of maintain their secrecy and to keep that child safe because that was the thing that they were going to put forward and be their savior. It's year one, the year is one, the year is one, this is year one starting. This is their savior. This is the turning point of history. Um, it's going to do all these things and redeem the burned and blah, 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 blah. Like, you know, I mean, they're going to do whatever it takes to sort of maintain this order that apparently they've been working on this for hundreds of years. This finally happened. I think that ultimately if Rosemary decided not to fall in line, maybe they would have killed her like they've done with so many other people. Maybe they would have brainwashed her with their scary witch magic, you know, whatever it is. They were going to get what they wanted. And I think probably Roman in the film was wise enough to understand the decision that she was going to make before anyone else in the room thought it through. Right. Um, So, yeah, like so if we think about that in the feminist perspective, yes, her autonomy was ultimately stolen from her because they use the thing that she loved the most against her. Um, And if you sort of like wheel this back around to the the Christian perspective, I think that's the sort of same story that they're trying to tell. And this, of course, is sort of thematic of a lot of these sort of supernatural demonic movies, these demonic horror movies and and ghost movies and whatever that you see in the West. Um, Shara, this comes from the the video that you shared with us before the the discussion. So I think that's that's really poignant. you know, a lot of this stuff ends up being Christian by default. And I think the the larger point of the movie is one that sort of defends Christianity because the main tragedy of the end of the movie is that ultimately the Satanists, the bad guys are able to use the thing that Rosemary loves the most in the entire world to lead to her ultimate fall. You know, she, at the beginning of the movie has these visions. Um, and maybe it's, maybe it's after the ritual, but like she imagines this sort of like this, this memory I interpreted it as of when she was younger as part of the Catholic church and there were nuns and stuff. If you look at descriptions of the film, she's supposed to be a Catholic character, right? And she at one point says in the movie that she doesn't want to have an abortion. So clearly that's like an important thing to her. Like she's pro-life as, as far as like the child thing goes. So I think she is probably seen as being this by default sort of assumed Catholic Christian character who is sort of trying to stand up for what is right and save her child from, you know, the, the evil witches, the evil Satanists. And ultimately she sort of loses that battle. Um, so either way, in either interpretation, I think that's probably, probably the tragic downfall is that, you know, what she loves and what she cares about most in the entire world is used to manipulate her into a tragic fall. I think that makes an interesting uh, question to give conservative Christians then at this point then is, uh, is abortion okay if you have the devil literally growing inside of you? Uh, what say you? <laughs> I mean, you know, it, no, no, of course not. Murder? You, you're, you're never allowed to kill it when it's in the womb, only when it becomes a fully formed life, <laughs> right? After it's born, then it gets nothing. There, there's no support network, nothing whatsoever. After that, it's totally fine. Kill it in the cradle. That video we were referencing was Christian Horror by Renegade Cut. It is a uh, it's a fairly in-depth analysis of supernatural horror or Christian horror as as this uh, the the channel chooses to present it. And what's odd, it's it's fairly in-depth and fairly wide-ranging, but what it doesn't include is Rosemary's Baby, oddly enough. And I think that's all because I think Rosemary's Baby's relationship to religion is a little more complex 
than some of the films that were included in that particular video. Um, and we, we get this moment where Roman disputes the authority of religion during during the dinner scene, and but then the imagery during the rape scene reverses the authority of the Pope. The Pope transfigures into a med member of the cult, and then the papal ring is actually the the amulet on the, the necklace. Now, normally, as this video points out, devil movies reify re religious figures. We see this in The Exorcist. We see this in multiple uh, films, Stigmata. Uh, it is the Catholic Church, specifically, that is called in to fix the problems associated with the devil. So it's it's almost as though these, these movies are suggesting that when you got a devil problem, the person to call is your priest. And that kind of makes sense within the the logic of the the universes that these are set up and um you know the the video does a good job of sort of going through that but rosemary's baby seems more complex because we also get this uh time magazine thing where is god dead which is of course uh, you know reference to nietzsche and uh i think there's some larger more complex issues going on as it relates to religion and i specifically think it goes back to this theme of authority uh that we discussed earlier that uh this is religious authority is being undermined by the the satanic cult um as to suggest that they are the ones with authority that it's that it's uh that god has been killed god is dead and now we are the ones who are taking over um and roman says that very specifically in the the final scene like what do, what do you guys think is this uh, uh how how does this relate to the christian horror from renegade cut and also uh from other uh supernatural horror films that you've seen I think, oh, sorry. You know, you had it. Okay, cool. I, I think this is 100% pure war on Christmas, like through and through. The the magazine article, I think, is is meant to sort of indicate, yes, we, we have that question being posed, but also the people who are presumably a part of this cult are, are like high in society, sort of the people in charge. They're the doctors. They're in film. They're in media. Maybe they're even owning the magazines and controlling the stories that go out. So, yes, I think this sort of conspiracy element that you have here probably plays into a lot of the a lot of the the christian focused media that we see today right um it, it definitely sort of falls in line with the the hollywood liberal elite kind of i think ideal where we have people you know hypothesizing that there are these satanic elements in higher up places or like the illuminati or whatever like the new world order government and we you know eating babies and what you know i mean it, like it, it sort of plays into a narrative that we still see today that the vast majority of people who are Christian are somehow being victimized and marginalized and, and turned into the minority when, you know, I, 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 that's the story. I think that story really sells super well because people like to feel like that, I guess, I don't, I don't know what it is. Like it's, it obviously speaks to something well, I think deep in people's psychology where they, they like to play the, the person who is being challenged by the big powerful force at hand and they're able to rise up and, and whatever. I mean, it's a story that really sells man. And like, it doesn't even have to be religiously themed. It, it plays well too. And in, in American history, we love that revolution story. And I think it probably sort of sounds a lot like that too. Um, which sort of also maybe goes into like some second amendment stuff, obviously like a ragtag group of renegade gorillas were able to fight off the British government, you know, and their armies, you know, I don't know. It's just, there, there's like a, there's a theme there. There's like a core story at the center of that narrative that goes beyond any real narrative stacked on top of it that I think just really sells super well to people. 
And I think it's because this there's something unique in our psychology that we like to be the underdog, especially when we're the ones in power, because it reinforces the idea that we should deserve the power. Let me start off by saying that I think that the, the Renegade Cut video just begs for a subversion of this narrative. I want a movie where the Catholic Church are the clear bad guys and the Satanists are the heroes that are trying to save us from them. I mean, that just that just presents itself as such an obvious subversion of the trope. I'm amazed. I mean, if it has been made, someone please tell me. Um, but if it hasn't been made, I don't know how it hasn't been made yet. It's kind of been made in The Godfather 3. Like, it, what's odd is The Godfather 3 is actually a movie about how the Catholic Church mirrors the organization of gangsters it's kind of it's actually under all of the bullshit the fact that Sofia Coppola gives a shitty performance the fact that it's way too long it's actually a fairly good idea for a movie that's another topic for another day (laughs) I'm talking about a religious horror film in which this is how it plays out um but uh uh that aside I think that you guys have both uh uh sort of on on both sides hit something it was a serious problem i had with the entire premise not necessarily of renegade cuts uh thesis but with what his what renegade cuts thesis is revealing and that is according to the traditional christian slash catholic story god is all powerful and is destined to win there can be no drama at all if you genuinely accept that uh, that theology that metaphysics um because no matter what satan does uh, God is destined to win in the end. Uh, so it, the, 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 all this drama, all this tension only makes sense if you don't accept that frame. If you accept the idea instead that God is not all-powerful, that Satan might actually win, um, uh, you know, and, and th- this, uh, that it has been played up in films like The Devil's Advocate um, um, and arguably possibly at the end of Rosemary's Baby uh, uh, when you have the, the, the big speech about Hail Satan, um, etc., um, uh, so, you know, if, if what's supposed to be scary from a Christian point of view is that it's threatening this religious certainty that you have, that, that, uh, um, it, it, it's scary precisely because it's challenging your assumption that God necessarily will save your soul and that Satan can't have you, um, then I can see that's generally scary. But that seems to run against the Renegade Cut's thesis, which is that these films just reinforce this sort of Christo-normative view of the world. Um, but the Christo-normative view is that Satan cannot win. So I, I, I don't see how those two things can be reconciled in my mind. We'll, so like, you think include that... a, uh, we'll, we'll include a link in the description below to the video that we're talking about so that uh, if you want to pause and, and watch that video and then come back, uh, we will certainly uh, have that for you. Go ahead, Ben. Uh, I was just going to say that I love the idea that Rosemary's Baby and like really all of these sort of films that we're talking about and that we saw in Renegade Cut are just tales told by idiots full of sound and fury signifying nothing. However, I do think that the drama there really does go down to an interpersonal level. Um, And I think that's probably where the battle is always framed throughout every single one of these movies. And that's why they're so poignant is because the the point of them and I think the draw of them is that if you don't do this thing, if you don't fall in line with the church and with these particular sets of beliefs, you, you, the viewer, 
are going to be damned for all eternity. And like, you are going to be on the losing side of history. And clearly like this one side of history is going to win in the end, but you through the choices you make are going to be on the losing side. If you don't fall in line with the beliefs that we want you to believe, you know what I mean? And that's, I think that's really, of course, if we tie this back to, um, our discussion about authority, how that really becomes incredibly, incredibly, uh, powerful because, uh, in, in some interpretations, like the the entire religious narrative can be thought of as sort of like a control mechanism. Um, I, I don't necessarily necessarily know how deeply I want to dive into that because I don't want to lose necessarily all of our subscribers. However, you know, I, I think there there is something to be said there. You know what I mean? Um, it's it's really just all about yes, this outcome is certain. However, your outcome is not certain. So make this choice because it's the right choice to make. In that sense, the drama isn't the characters on the screen; it's the characters in the theater. It's the people watching the movie, and they're the ones that have to fall in line and agree with the ideology and worldview being presented on screen. Go ahead, Shara. Yeah, so um, there's a couple of movies that I feel do uh, attack the Christian faith in in the ways that Garrett was uh, describing, but maybe not in the exact way of, like, uh, the church is bad and and these devil worshippers are good, but... um, more specifically, if you look at a movie like uh, The Prophecy or even look at a TV show like Supernatural, they have this whole angels versus demons thing going on, um, and the angels are assholes. They are just absolute horrible assholes. Uh, it, with the Supernatural storyline, and I know a lot of people hated when when Supernatural went off on this tangent, but I thought it was really interesting, actually. I thought it was very refreshing. Um God is like fucked off. Nobody knows where God is. And the angels and demons are just vying for power and using human beings as like pawns in their game. And that is a very interesting uh, storyline. Other people hated it, but I thought it was damn interesting because demons and angels couldn't exist in uh, their own like beings. They had to like use vessels or us to implant themselves. And then we're having human beings as their like toys like puppets to fight in their you know holy wars and um oh yeah and preacher preacher it also has some of that uh aspect it's very refreshing like the good and the bad we 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 try to label them as good and bad no they're just all people trying to vie for power trying to have authority trying to take control and also they are jealous of us, the human beings, because we are the most loved by God, and they are not, and um, and they know it. So they especially hate human beings. I think that's a very refreshing view. Um, as far as like Christians being the bad guys, I think Red State did a an okay job showing that. Um, maybe it could be expanded on, of course, but um, I don't know. I I do think you're right. There needs to be a little bit more uh refreshing views on religion and supernatural um there's so many opportunities for story with with this stuff but if we make a supernatural movie is it is it going to push people into a religious viewpoint i know with the exorcist a ton of people started attending church after watching it um i don't know that it was necessarily saying that god is right and the church is good um, but I guess that was kind of where, <laughs> that's where the obvious point is going to be when the priest is the hero. Uh, the, the priest that was losing his faith more specifically was the hero. So, so let me put this out there to you then, um, based on where the film ends, 
do we really have any particular reason to think that the Satanists are actually the bad guys? I mean, there are certain bad things that they do, certainly. I mean, they most notably, they rape and deceive Rosemary, which is clearly uh, not something you would consider to be morally uh, uh, praiseworthy or anything like that. Um, but at the same time, again, to go back to my other point, at the end, they do invite her back in to be a part of it. Um, you know, we, we, we take this assumption that Satan is going and the son of Satan is going to bring about the end of the days and the end of the world and everyone's going to suffer. And it's all going to be bad, etc. But is that actually in there or is that just an assumption that we're projecting onto it? I mean, yeah. why didn't they find someone who wanted to do this? How hard is it to find a chick who wants to give birth to the most powerful being on, on the planet? Come on. You didn't need to trick anybody. You didn't need to get her. You could have found anybody else. So I feel like for that, like, why? <laughs> Just why? It doesn't make sense to me. Uh, I, I don't know. It, it, it That's part of my big problem with this particular group. Because I also tried to see if they were possibly, maybe they want this this child to come into power because they want to help raise someone that will do right by the planet. I mean, maybe they had some good ideas about what they wanted to do or, or at least had good intentions, but why did they have to rape her? Why did they have to do it the way they did it? It seems really strange. Now maybe they drugged her so it wouldn't be so painful because they knew it was going to be a violent sexual experience. Maybe they were giving her all these little potions and stuff because they were trying to help her through bearing such a, a, hard to bear child maybe they had good intentions but the the trickery the lying the deceit is the problem and so i guess that's where i have a hard time believing there was any goodness there because why i don't think it was necessary the film does give us another character it gives us terry um at the beginning of the movie who eventually commits suicide now of course we don't know much maybe commit suicide, maybe is pushed out the window. She she falls out a window, that we know for sure. And uh, she seems relatively happy. Now, is it possible that she was, uh, of course, groomed to be Rosemary and then disposable afterwards? Or, uh, yeah, I mean, it, the film gives us Terry and doesn't tell us a whole lot about her. So I'm wondering whether how she sort of fits into that, the narrative... There's another movie, right? There's a there's a Rosemary's Baby from Guy's perspective, and there's a Rosemary's Baby from uh, the cast of Ed's perspective and the perspective of the Coven, um, and those are interesting movies as well. And I sort of wonder what would happen with what happens with Terry there. Does she just not? Does she prove to be infertile, and it is Rosemary because she particularly wants to have a child, and then. It's the time when she's able to have a child that uh, they're able to make their scheme go go forth. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it, it seems as though Terry was sort of their failed experiment, and then they moved on to Rosemary. Quick uh, fun trivia thing. Uh, what In the scene when we first meet her, uh, Rosemary asks her if she's the actress something something, and it's the actual name of the actress playing the character, uh, which is sort of just a fun little uh, a little joke that they put in there. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think you, you, you outlined the possibilities, right? Maybe she realized what they were doing and killed herself so she couldn't be used by the cult. Uh, maybe she could, wasn't able to breed and they killed her um, uh, to get her out of the way or something like that. There's a, there's a host of possibilities, none of which are definitively ruled in or ruled out, I think. But from the point of view of the audience, you know, again, it's, it's pretty clear that the point is to 
uh, to, to set things up in such a way that we, you recognize that there's something untrustworthy about these people, uh, that, that, that uh, their relationship with young women isn't unhealthy. And then as you see them start to sort of you know, elbow their way into Rosemary's life, it's supposed to sort of uh, uh, you know, think back to her and recognize that there's a, there's a threat and there's a danger here. Let's transition from one Christian reading of this film to another, and that is the story of Faust. Now, uh, Guy sacrifices his wife for financial gain and career advancement, but typically in Faustian stories, uh, they're from the perspective of a character who reaches too high and then sacrifices himself. But uh, this is in the tradition of Faustian stories from the position of the sacrificed. And I made the argument that ready or not was also from the perspective of the sacrificed. Um, but this Faust story, the Faust story rather like Frankenstein implies that we should know our place. And uh, I wonder, does the film operate in the same vein? Is this a film about knowing your place uh, as it relates to the, you know, giant? So what? I love the story of Faust. I think it's really interesting, all the different variations on it. And I think something that uh, it definitely has in common with, with Marlowe's Faust um, uh, more than anything else is that uh, God is basically nowhere to be found in this film. Uh, you know, and, and this might be why it's not in the Renegade cut at all, because there is no sort of counterweight. Um, I think, in Mar if I recall correctly, in Marlowe's Faust, there is precisely one positive uh, sort of representation of God in the play uh, and it's the good angel and the good angel has like five lines of dialogue and like every other single character is a demon or Mephistopheles or whatever and they're all trying to corrupt his soul um, so it's just totally unfair on Faust's point of view he has all these these dark forces aligned against him to tempt him and destroy him and God ain't lifting a finger to help him and in much the same way God is not lifting a finger to help Rosemary uh, um, uh, she she has no sort of assistance at all I mean she has some earthly friends of course but but uh, uh, you know there, there's no there's no priest that tries to come to the rescue there are no sort of uh, uh, angels or holy characters that try to to interject in some way to to save her um, so again from a sort of you know uh, a, a Christian critic a point of view that is critical of the Christian worldview on both the story of Faust and Rosemary's baby. I'm not sure if it's fair to say that God is to blame necessarily, but God's inaction, the silence of God, is just as much what condemns our characters as does the actions of the devil. Um, and in that respect, if we are going to blame the devil for corrupting uh, Guy, for, 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 for seducing Rosemary at the end, and for damning Faust, it seems like you know, we can just as easily blame God for not doing more to save the, uh, the people who God allegedly loves. Well, there's uh, just a brief kind of pushback on that. In Goethe's Faust, at the very end, uh, Mephistopheles tries to seize Faust's soul, but then God intervenes, and uh, Faust is actually, at the end of Goethe's Faust, it's kind of a redemptive story. So God right. does get involved in Goethe. But, Which is why uh, I went with Marlowe's Faust, because that's right. not how Marlowe's Faust ends. Right, or some of the other, Bogakov's, Mons, etc. 
Yeah, I think that was really that that sort of like ties back to the point that I was kind of wanting to make about this uh, and how it sort of relates back to the film is that, you know, it really depends on which of the original versions that you're talking about. And I don't think we know enough about the story of Rosemary's Baby and how it ends and what happens with Guy to really understand which version of Faust it would fall in line with, because ultimately, in my interpretation, like the story itself, the crux is really what happens in the end. Is he ultimately deterministically damned or does he get a redemption? Um and just depending on that one tweak at the end, I think completely changes the entire story and the entire meaning of the story. So, I mean, I, I would actually be curious to kind of find out exactly how these sequels for Rosemary's Baby turned out, because I had never before heard that there was a sequel. Um, and it'd be really interesting to see what happens in that continuation. The, this, the film sequel is generally considered to be a train wreck and it's awful. Uh, and the novel sequel, uh, which was Ira Levin's last novel, um, it has some more more mixed reviews, but crucially, the film was not based on Ira Levin's novel. It's one of one of only two of his novels which have not been turned into into a film. So I I suspect that if you know the right director came along and adapted it in the right way, you could actually have a high quality uh, 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 sequel based on on Levin's novel. Um, uh, but you know, it, it, part of the reason why it's so hard to go back to this, right? It's like so many classic films trying to, to, to sort of revisit that world almost just begs for disappointment. You know, uh, I don't mean to, to, to cast aspersions on the upcoming, uh, Dr. Sleep, but I gotta say, I am trying desperately not to get my hopes up for obvious reasons. Yeah, in in addition to all that, like I think that this is also a really well-made film. Like we've talked about all of these themes and I think a lot of them are interesting and have a lot of fodder for discussion, but just on a technical level. And you know, feel free to interrupt me if you want to talk about any of these things, but I want to I want to sort of list some of the the technical things that I found really good about this movie. And if there are other things that you want to add to this, please let me Please interrupt me. But, like, there are low angles all throughout this film just on male characters, and Rosemary almost never gets a low angle. She's either always straight on or in these sort of extreme close-ups that sort of accentuate how trapped she is. But the low angles on the male characters make them seem opposing, which I thought was a really interesting uh, directorial choice. And let's just talk about the performances. Mia Farrow is absolutely amazing in this film. A definite Oscar snub in 1968. But Ruth Gordon, creepy as fuck and she uh it sort of revived her career she did harold and maude after this movie uh which i think is one of her finest performances but she's just great this is a well-deserved best supporting actress uh win for ruth gordon um anything else that stood out to you about the the filmmaking in this movie so I, I did find it interesting because um when you bring up the camera angles and you bring up how men are portrayed and how uh she's portrayed there's very similar camera angles in Repulsion, which is also done by Lansky. Uh, and, and that was one of his ways of showing that, um, you know, she's losing her mind. In the close-ups, she's losing her mind. And then these male figures are, are being seen from, you know, way down below to make them look very intimidating, like there's something that you need to be afraid of. Of course, in Repulsion, she actually acts out in physical violence towards these men. Uh, and uh, throws their dead bodies in bathtubs. I hope I hope I'm not like spoiling anything, but <laughs> she becomes very violent. Uh, she becomes very very violent, and um, 
and and starts to lose her mind over this stuff. Uh, whereas I, I do think the difference with Rosemary's baby is she's trying to reason through these things and she's trying to see the like best in people. Uh, she's trying to give them the benefit of the doubt. And um, I think it adds a lot of layers to the character. And that is a really hard character to portray um, because you are, on the one hand, very skeptical of these things. You're afraid of these things. You know that there's something wrong. You feel it in your gut, but you're going to act another way because um, you could be wrong. And um, I, and maybe that's what added to this amazing performance and would have been a really hard character for some people to be able to pull off, honestly, because you have to be able to depict the fear and the uh, inability to trust your own self, but also you totally trust yourself. And I'm going to try to act like there's nothing wrong, though. That's so hard to portray through acting. And so I think that's I agree with you with the with the snub because that is super hard to act out. Like, holy crap, that's an amazing achievement. There were two scenes that I really sort of want to highlight, or maybe just like, maybe just really the final act, I think is, is, is incredibly interesting. Um, first of all, the way that the the entrance into the cast of Ed's apartment is sort of seated at the very beginning of the movie with that closet very interesting, not necessarily a shooting technique, but it's really interesting from a narrative like perspective from storytelling. Um, that's really good seating. Like I just, I don't know, like that's, that's, that's something that I like to try and emphasize in, in films whenever they do this really, really well, where they have an idea that comes up early on and you think, Oh, that's kind of weird. Not necessarily important, but then it's sort of like crucial or critical or even just like repeated. This one isn't, it's just literally the two different times. Well, Nah, three different times because there is a shot of her sort of redoing the the um, the closet as well, and like putting in the cabinets and designing that, putting up the wallpaper and all that. So it's kind of interesting. So you really don't know that it's going to be important until the very end when that becomes her portal into this apartment, into this 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 whole other kind of space. And to that point, getting to the shooting of that, I think it's incredibly interesting because once she does tear all that out and she opens up the door with her knife and she's looking through. I think it's a fantastic long shot and it has a very, very, very nice through the rabbit hole, like through the looking glass kind of feel where suddenly you've transformed into this different world where you're getting ready for this monumentous sort of climactic explosion of, Oh my God to happen. Right? Like she's come into this, she looks over and you have the image of the burning church, <laughs> which was something that you saw in her vision, but now it's there in this painting and it's really interesting thematically with the Satanism. Um, and of course she's kind of looking around, but as she moves down this, uh, this hallway, you have these other, like really the lighting is totally different from her apartment. It's all in the dark. It's shaded. Um, almost kind of like a cool hue to where you have this more of like the warmth of the dark wood and kind of like the light from the party coming down the hallway. It's, it's just this totally different feel. And you just, you feel like you're being drawn in in this very dreamlike way um, into this whole other sort of like mind blowing thing that's about to happen. So I thought that was really interesting, but when we're talking about angles and looking at people's face and how that sort of communicates power dynamics, we do see the final scene, not, not the final scene, but like the, the sort of, the 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 actual climax where rosemary is looking down into the the cradle or, or whatever it is where the where the child is you never actually see the child by the way which i think is awesome like that's another amazing amazing element of this you just get the the scene of the eyes like you get the splash of the eyes which is a call back to her vision whenever she saw the eyes of the thing that was attacking her um but whenever you're you're there and she's pulling away the veil you are you do get a low angle on her face 
And I think the reason it was shot that way was so that you you get this sort of long, like over dramatically horrified look that she has, and it works really really well. But what is what is the what is the power dynamic communicated there? I mean, like obviously she, she's standing over this child and she has a knife. Maybe she has a decision to make. But I my question, I guess, is really was that really kind of the right way to shoot that scene? I mean, that's I think it's I think it's fantastic. It's a great shot. But I'm wondering if there might have been a better way to do it. I, I'm failing to like, I'm, I'm failing to imagine a better way because I do think it was so incredibly effective at communicating the facial expression. But I don't necessarily know if we're thinking about this from the power dynamics and the camera angles, if it communicated her powerlessness to the situation and the fact that she was in that moment ultimately defeated. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, I saw I saw that as a POV, uh, and so yeah, you're right. Technically, it is a low angle, but I thought it, I saw it as a POV from a the child's perspective, so that she we get to accentuate like what her reaction to her own child is, and uh, that's how I read that shot. And so I would have shot it the same way, so that we're putting we're putting the audience in the place of the child and seeing the mother's reaction to the first time that she sees her child. Um, so I always, I always sort of try to think of camera angles and uh, camera placement as where in the scene do we want to put the audience and where in the scene are we being identified as? And so in that sense, we are identified as the child in that moment. And that's why I think that that is incredibly effective. Uh, Garrett, you wanted to jump in on this, too. Yeah, I, I would say I was agreeing with everything up until Ben brought up this final point. Um, uh, uh, to me, that, that, that camera decision is about uh, a power shift. She walks into that room in total fucking charge. She's got her knife. And she and she says, "Shut up! I'm not listening to you, Roman. You're in Dubrovnik." You know, which is a fucking line that I loved. You know, she has she has the power coming into that scene, but once she pulls back the veil and realizes, you know, the final shoe is dropped from what she 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 did not realize before, um, which is a total revelation for her because again, she thought they were just trying to kidnap the child, right? She thought they were just kind of take it from her. She had no idea at all that this was actually going to be the, the spawn of Satan. So for me, that, that camera angle was, was about showing that shift of power, you know, she take of, of taking her from a position of I'm in charge here, motherfuckers to, Oh my God, I did not realize how not in charge I am. Um, and so to that, I mean, even Jim, even if you're right, that as a general rule, camera placement and angle is, should be about where you want the, the, uh, the audience to be uh, in this particular situation, to my mind, it was more about how we want to see her lose power, to see her lose the authority and control. Um, so it was more about the character than about the audience, uh, from my point of view. Um, uh, so, that's a fair point. So here's where I'm going to disagree with you guys, and this is why I my part two of Rosemary's Baby would be very different than, uh, I guess, what it actually was written as. She has the ultimate power now. She's the Antichrist's mom. Are you fucking kidding me? She's going to live in mansions. She's going to have whatever she wants, whenever she wants. She's going to have servants. She is going to be the most powerful woman on the planet. No one is going to be able to uh, have any power over her ever again. And this is her ticket to never have to deal with anybody 
doing anything like this to her ever again. She now has the golden ticket, if you will. So, I, I mean, I, I see her as being a powerful being now. Um, and she'll probably be worshipped by tons of people and, and have great fame and popularity. And, you know, be able to hang out with her kid. That's that's my reading of it. And, and maybe it's incorrect, but I feel like it was a power shift for her. And that's probably why I saw her as as uh, having a different ending than just succumbing to everybody's whims. But it might have been camera angle that made me uh, screwed up from it. It was meant to be point of view, and I'm just reading it all wrong, you know? I, I like that idea a lot. I don't think it's wrong, but I do think it's extra textual. I don't think there's anything in the film, per se, that suggests that ending. I mean, there's nothing that rules it out either. It's certainly an, an open option for what happens next. Um, but what's happening in the moment, it's pretty clear to me that even when she chooses to be the m baby's mother, she's not coming in. So it's from the point of view of I have the power. Uh, she's she's pretty clearly recognizing she's making a moral compromise and in a very real sense, selling her soul to be with her son. Yeah, it's uh, I should have said it's not strict point of view because she's not looking directly into the camera. So it's kind of an off point of view shot. But um, yeah, uh, go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I did just want to follow up because I never, never actually addressed the, the, the initial question about the technical merits and something which no one has talked about before, which kind of uh, uh, shocks me, is the music. Oh, my God, that lullaby that Mia Farrow actually sings in both the beginning and the end is haunting as fuck. I love it. It's eerie. It's creepy. It feels like something that might be sung to a child, but probably is inappropriate to sing to a child because it's, you know, it's pacifying, but also evil. It's got that minor key into it. Um, so so that piece of music in particular, but even throughout the film, the other sort of musical touches throughout, I think, do a wonderful job of setting tone, uh, of, of conveying a sort of a, a emotional st status of, of tension. Um, uh, and so, yeah, I think the music in this film, the score, is, is wonderful. Um, that's another technical point that I would want to praise. And also, while, I mean, this, this probably is a little more idiosyncratic to me, um, uh, I've mentioned before, I'm pretty sure uh, on this podcast to you guys before, I'm a, a huge lover of the kind of film stock that we see. I typically associate a little more with 1970s horror films, uh, but uh, again, I don't know enough about the technical side of things to know exactly what it is, but I feel that same kind of grainy texture in this film that you see in a lot of 1970s films uh, that, that make for a visual effect that I absolutely love. And I frankly think that more films made today should deliberately go back and reuse that old film stock, or at least create a video effect that mimics it especially if they're doing a period piece or if they're doing a a, a, a remake of a film to, to to recapture that that grainy textural feel which just screams in this case late 60s but again to my association more uh, more late 70s i just love that texture i love that feel um and that's not necessarily a technical choice that was made it's just how film stock at the time uh, uh tended to to to, to work uh, but for me i always associate with a certain kind of horror film and it creates a feel for me that uh, that's very very visceral and very very real so do you want to run down the 1968 oscars since we talked about how much she was snubbed a couple times this is this is actually kind of fun from a 2000 because this was i'm looking at the oscars and this was the year of total fucking snubs so best picture was oliver which, interestingly enough, was later remade by Roman Polanski. True. Best picture was Oliver. Best director was Carol Reed for Oliver. Beating out 
the not nominated Roman Polanski and Stanley Kubrick for 2001 A Space Odyssey. Uh, best actor, Cliff Robertson won for Charlie. Okay, that's fine. Um, although Peter O'Toole never won an Oscar and he was nominated that year for Lion in Winter. Here's the best actresses. These, this is what won over Mia Farrow. This was a, a two, two people tied, Catherine Hepburn for Lion in Winter and Barbara Streisand for Funny Girl both beat out the not nominated Mia Farrow. Patricia Neal uh, for the subject was Roses, uh, Vanessa Resgra Redgrave for Isadora, and Joanne Woodward for Rachel. Rachel were all nominated instead of Mia Farrow. I love it. Shara, what's your reaction to this? I was just like, what the fuck? Is this, is this because people were, they had an aversion to horror? Was it seen as like low class, like uh, fodder, so it didn't get as much respect? Like what the hell was going on? That's so crazy to me. Rachel Rachel is one of those sort of borderline it's it's a psychological drama so I'm actually okay with Rachel Rachel uh being nominated Joanne Woodward is fantastic in that but I think this talks about like this speaks to how the academy was totally behind the times as it related to what film was doing in the late 60s film was take this was a transitional moment in the late 60s and this was when high-minded films started to uh with with Sidney Lumet's The Pawnbroker and uh Roman Polanski's films and then later on into the 70s where the film nerds really took over and started to uh, started to to take over the the industry, um, but what we see in the 1968 1969 ceremony 1968 films is sort of this regression to old Hollywood with Oliver winning Best Picture and Best Director, and uh, it was and and Funny Girl and Barbara Streisand winning for Best Actress. It's this it's these remnants of old Hollywood which the Academy was nominating and rewarding at that time, while ignoring the really cutting edge work that Polanski and Rosemary's Baby was done. Now, it's not a total shutout for Rosemary's Baby because, as I said, Ruth Gordon w did win for Best Supporting Actress. She won over Lynn Carlin for Faces, Sondra Locke, The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, Kate Medford, Funny Girl, Estelle Parsons, Rachel Rachel. Um, so she they did get it right in the Best Supporting Actress category, and they did not uh, nominate and honor a horror film in, in that category. But the big categories were all old Hollywood uh, remnants that were being... Uh, that, that were being honored. And I think it has something to do with how this period in 1968 was a transition period. And I wonder uh, like what that says about, you know, Green Book winning best, best picture last year and how that relates to whether or not we're in a tra transition period vis-a-vis uh, -vis our films about race. I mean, that was an old Hollywood kind of race story that was put right up against Black Klansman, which is, and uh, Blind Spotting, which was not even nominated in that year. So it's, it's an interesting, like this is an interesting snapshot into a transitional period in Hollywood. And a Do you think that that just happens industry. at the end? Do you think that just happens at the end of decades? Like there's just this 
moment of people just figuring shit out and then indie makers like become more mainstream eventually i see this happen in gaming too by the way but it just seems like there's these periods i think 94 was a transitional period in film as well so i don't think it's necessarily the end of decades uh 1994 was the year that pulp fiction came out and it was the year of this independent film maker of course uh yes your shirt uh but forrest gump famously won best picture in 1994 over Pulp Fiction. Um, So I think that it just speaks to how the Academy sort of rewards um, old Hollywood rather than the new cutting edge work uh, that's being done. I don't think that uh, English Patient, which was sort of sold as this kind of best, it it was sold as this independent film, even though it totally wasn't. uh, I don't think that wins best picture in 96 unless uh pulp fiction loses so it it is an interesting kind of conversation to be had about what the academy rewards and what it doesn't um are we ready to go into final thoughts folks okay um so uh i i think it should be clear from the uh, everything we're saying that i find this film to be really interesting really fascinating i don't think i've stressed actually though how much i found this film to be genuinely scary. I mean, the first time I watched this film, I was absolutely riveted. And uh, it was, I was alone late at night and I felt genuine, genuine fear, um, which is something I know that Jim, you almost never experienced watching films. But for me, uh, this is is one of the few films I can identify that I can think specifically, yeah, when I saw that film, I was genuinely, honestly scared. Um, So it doesn't happen much for me, but it does happen. And this is one of those films that succeeded at genuinely scaring me. Um, so uh, as a horror film, I think this this film is rightly considered a classic and one of the best of the genre. Um, uh, we've talked, I think, in some depth about the, the myriad uh, interesting philosophical layers, feminist lenses, religious lenses, and so forth. Uh, so I won't sort of recap that. But I do want to take a quick moment just to, to address what I imagine some of our audience is probably thinking is the elephant in the room. And that is the the terrible crimes that Roman Polanski has committed. And I think this one of the interesting things uh, amongst many of the the, the the Me Too cases is there's no ambiguity about the fact that, yes, he did this. He has admitted as much. He's not denied it the way some other people has. He's not said that he's been misunderstood or misinterpreted or something like that. This is a case where he has fully confessed that he committed the crime of which he is charged. Um, and it brings up a host of challenging and difficult questions about how we as consumers of art relate to, to art, how art relates to artists, uh, uh, how, uh, what sorts of rules there should be regarding the consumption of art made by people who do terrible things. On the one hand, of course, you can say if you never consume art made by people done by terrible things, you probably would never consume any art because human beings just writ large are almost always have some sort of skeleton in their closet. And so everyone has to decide where they're comfortable drawing the line. Um, we obviously are comfortable watching this film and talking about this film without ever hardly ever mentioning it. Um, uh, the only reason why I didn't sort of assert making this more of a central topic is it could easily overwhelm the conversation of the film itself. Maybe we should do a separate video about uh, uh, consuming films from people who do terrible things. There would be no shortage of material to talk about and, and, and sort of the ethics and aesthetics thereof. Um, But I didn't want to let the opportunity go by without at least mentioning the fact that all of us in the room are cognizant of it. We are cognizant of the fact that it it is worth talking about. It is, you know, to use the overused term, problematic. 
Uh, and to say specifically that if you out there in our audience feel that we shouldn't watch this film, we shouldn't talk about this film, clearly we disagree with you, but speaking for myself only, I respect your opinion. I understand where you're coming from, and I don't think that you are, that your re reaction is wrong. Uh, and if you want to judge us and condemn us for talking about it anyway, you know, again, again once more, I, I don't agree with that condemnation, but I'm not going to say it's preposterous. I see where you're coming from, and I can respect that decision even if I don't share it. So now with that out of the way, bottom lining it, uh, this film uh, on well a scale. Said. That yeah, was well you. said. Um, so on a, uh, on, a, on a one to five scale, I think this film is genuinely phenomenal. One of the best horror films ever made, four and a half out of five. So this, this was one of those movies that um, I had heard about forever and ever and ever and never watched. And um, I had a lot of ideas about what it might be about. I had n no idea how... <laughs> viscerally <laughs> creepy it was i had no idea about its impact on the world not just as horror movies are made but even on her haircut her haircut became extremely iconic for the end of the 60s and uh and and the pixie cut is still to this day a very popular haircut because of this film which is really it says a lot about our culture when a famous actress can do a haircut and it and it for decades it always goes back to her. I still see in beauty magazines today uh, where someone will cut their hair short and they'll put Mia Farrow next to them and be like, hey, iconic, blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, wow, that is, she made a lot of culturally significant uh, um, additions to this film that, that just, it, it became huge. Like the way she dressed was really huge. The way her hair was, was really huge. Um, but also the way she advocated for herself. And there's been a lot of discussion. I've read a ton of books that have mentioned this movie specifically when they talk about feminism or philosophy or advocating for oneself. Um, so it, it's it's culturally significant. Um, and not only that, it, it's beautiful to look at. The dreamy, weird sequence of going through the rabbit hole of the closet and 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 all of the weird imagery that goes on and and the conversations the floating bed it's really really weird it's it's almost like a separate movie <laughs> it feels like it's not in that world which is perfect because it it helps you understand her perspective and what she's going through with that so um there's so many amazing choices done to help you feel like you're going mad yourself and maybe you're wrong about your perspective. Maybe they mean well. And, and that's a really hard thing to write. It is really hard to write from the perspective of the, the bad guys uh, where you kind of are like questioning if they have good intentions or if there's not something sinister going on that maybe you are losing your mind as she's feeling like she is losing her mind. So um I don't know. I, I really love the way that it's structured and how it has impacted movies today and how it has impacted feminism today. And I think it is an extremely important part of who we are today. And for that, and for the fact that it is actually very, very creepy, uh, I have to give it a four out of five. It is, it is definitely a fun movie if you want to freak out some friends <laughs> for the night. If you're wanting to actually watch something scary there's something for everybody in there to creep you out. So um, definitely a must see. Definitely everyone should see this film. 
So similarly to uh, Garrett and Shara, I'm also going to give this an incredibly high rating. I absolutely love this film. Um, I, I really think there's something to be said for drawing out a story and letting it simmer, um, not really just giving away the whole thing and, and jump scares and creepy shots of monsters and all the stuff that really seems to be prominent in horror f- films in, in the 2000s. Um, there's such a, an incredible subtlety to the tension building that you feel throughout the entire course of the film you get a little bit of a taste of it whenever we have sort of a dreamlike sequence whenever she's sort of imagining all of these crazy things going on um and and you see this sort of like vaguely satanic ritual to the slow unveiling of the storyline that we already kind of have a, a view into as we've already described in this podcast earlier that she slowly learns more and more about um, until we ultimately both learn at the final end that they're not just trying to sacrifice her child for the sake of some ritual. In fact, it is something much larger. Um, there, there's just so much to love about about this particular film. And even even if you try to classify this within typical genre horror, I, I'm not sure that it it fits perfectly. I mean, it kind of does, but it's also it's also just sort of out on the fringe, kind of like a lot of the other horror films I like most. For instance, like I think about Hagazusa, which, you know, you don't get a whole lot of that hard supernatural element. And I know like I'm, I might get some eye rolls on this because I think I was unique in my my high score of this film. But shit, like I that slow burn just really does it. I mean, when you really want to build tension and make a person feel horror, I think that's what really does it. Just shy away from those those cheap jump scares and, and just the fodder and really go for a great story that digs at you deeply. Um, there's something to be said for that, and we don't have enough of that today. Um, besides just the fantastic storytelling and all of the the technical merits of this film that we've already talked about that caused it to have a very high score for me, I also do want to call out, I mean, I think it's, it's portrayal of the standard sort of storyline that we've again already talked about is, is sort of tired and, and needs to be done away with. Um, we have witch witchcraft being characterized as satanic, which I think is entirely unfair. And again, sort of justifies um, murder uh, that was done uh, in the early part of the country for religious reasons, you know, women being oppressed because they were different because they weren't falling in line. They were literally burned at the stake and people throughout, I think his throughout most of his, I don't want to say most of history, Maybe in modern history, I'm going to say, you know, there there have been a lot of people unfairly martyred uh, in the name of not following within typical religious convention. And I think to sort of continue that narrative is is entirely unfair. And at some point we need to recognize that uh, calling people witches and demonizing them as Satanists and putting that within a, a typical Western Judeo-Christian framework is just is in and of itself a problematic thing to do and kind of messed up. Um, and not only not only that, but I think it was really interesting, of course, that we have sort of Satanists being the the main enemies here. Um, there was one really interesting piece of that when Roman was talking about who this Adrian, I think this this person, the second coming, or the the child of the devil, who he is. And it was really interesting that they go into this person being the redeemer of the downtrodden and and the the defender of the burned and you know all this stuff like essentially this person coming to protect and lift up the people who have truly been downtrodden throughout the history of of society and that's really interesting that's that's an incredibly interesting idea and i think actually if you think about uh in modern day i don't know if uh, you the, anyone watching this this episode has seen hail satan that documentary about the satanic temple but i think that really does sort of align quite well with their 
current mission and they are relatively new and i would say that the existing church of satan that you probably saw a little bit more about in the 70s and the whole satanic panic it's it's quite a a step away from those thoughts and and what the church of satan and stuff does but i think there it's a really interesting corollary between the the idea of the adversary and the person who is sort of downtrodden and sort of the true underdog um and the people rising up to defend the people that really need to be defended so taking that and then sort of miscoloring it with a group of people who are, are willing to attack and abuse um, and manipulate and rape a woman. Um, I, I think that totally goes in contradiction with those, the speech and what they actually did. So I think that's completely unfair. Um, in fact, one of the, the tenets of the satanic temple is that one's body is inviolable and subject to one's own will alone, which I think totally goes against the portrayal of, of Satanists that we saw in this movie. So just something to bring it up into, into current day politics and current groups are actively trying to do work. Um, I think dispelling the, the imagery that we use, um, and, and sort of taking away the negativity that's been put around it by film and media and, and culture for a very long time, I think is something healthy to talk about and something interesting to look into. I think the final score that I'm going to have to give this film is also going to be a 4.5 out of five. Uh, again, like this is going to be one of the great classics for me. It's absolutely fantastic. It's top tier. Um, still not reaching that elusive five out of five, but it is absolutely fantastic. And um, of course, we've already talked about the problematic nature of maybe consuming this piece of art, but as somebody who really does want to dig into horror and understand the genre and good examples of, of horror films um this is something that would be good to watch i think yeah i mean i find myself just wanting to repeat all of the things that uh my my intrepid co-hosts have uh have said and that is you know first of all let's talk about the film technically uh we've already gone through how carefully it is directed how well it is acted and how it was a turning point in sort of Hollywood cinema and and uh, and horror cinema as a whole. And it was a commercial success as well. It was one of the top 10 highest grossing films of the year. Um, and it's a, it, 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 it the language of the genre has been forever changed because of Rosemary's Baby and uh, because of some of the films that followed it, including The Exorcist and The Omen that I brought up in the introduction. So technically, I think it's masterful. It's incredibly influential, as as I've kind of laid out. And uh, I think that its themes are really interesting. Now, I think some of them run cross-purposes. Like, I, I think there is some question about its commitment to... A, uh, a feminist theme but that said we're we are evaluating it from a 2019 perspective on a 1968 film and so it's probably you know quite progressive for its time um and you know ben brought up the portrayal of uh aberrant religions or outside the norm religions i should say and uh i think that that's an interesting conversation to have but overall, its point of view about Christianity and religion, where it is excising the good, it's excising God, and it's excising uh, Christian. We don't have a priest as a secondary protagonist to this film. And I think that's an interesting and compelling choice as it comes to how we interpret this film um, 
in its in its religious sensibilities. So overall, I think it's a masterful film. It's interesting. It's wonderful to talk about. There's a lot of themes and and stuff that we could really dig our teeth into, as we have for the past two hours. Uh, for that reason, I'm giving it four out of five, um, which is you know a relatively high score. I'm right alongside with Shayra, so I, we sort of average out to four point two five. All recommends. All think that you should go see uh, Rosemary's Baby. That uh, Garrett's concerns, uh, notwithstanding, um, whether or not you you think it's ethical to consume this piece of art. So, uh, well, thank you for joining us on this episode of Deadly Analysis and our roundtable discussions. Hey, if you liked what you saw, give us a like, share, subscribe. Um, be sure to uh, check us out on social media: Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Uh, we are on all of the sites. And uh, join us next week when we tackle another Bergman film. Maybe this, maybe we found Ben's sweet spot. You know, he liked, uh, he likes Bergman's Seventh Seal so much. Maybe he'll like Through the Glass Darkly just as much. And uh, we might get uh, Ben's second elusive five stars. Um, it is entirely possible. Who knows? Uh, we'll join us next week and we will find out. This is one of the viewer suggestions. So we do listen to the comments. We do take a look at uh, some films that you've suggested us take a look at. Some of the films that you've suggested we take a look at, we've already taken a look at. Uh, but uh, please be sure to, uh, if you have any other ideas of films we th you think we should cover, drop them down in the comments below as well. And join us next week. We're almost at the bracket. Have a good night.